Okay, Boker Tov, good morning everyone. I want to thank the sponsors of our Parsha class this morning, Hadas and Ross Summers, in memory of her beloved niece, Nufar Bat Orit, commemoration of her fifth year at site. Her neshama should have an aliyah through our learning. And of course, we dedicate our learning as well. Achenu Kobes Yisrael, our brothers and sisters in Israel who are sitting under a barrage of rockets, something no country in the entire planet would ever tolerate. And uh, we hope and pray we hope the merit of our Torah learning this morning protects them and brings a true and lasting peace to them and to the whole world. We have the privilege this morning of studying Parsha's Vayetze. <clears throat> and literally this Parsha, as I say every week, picks up where the last one left off. Yaakov was on the run. He was deceptive. He stole the bracha from his father. We discussed it at length last week. And Yaakov has to flee. Love his brother Esav is in pursuit of him. And Yaakov, the Ishtam Yoshev O'alim, Yaakov, the pure, innocent man who sat dwelling in tents, now is forced to run out of the tent, to leave the tent, to flee, to run for his life. He's proven. Yitzchak loved Esav more than him. We spoke about this last week. Because Yitzchak predicted who would be the one who had the tenacity, who had the strength, the resolve to confront the forces of this world to persevere and to continue the legacy, all the evidence pointed to the fact that it would be Esav. Rivka told him, no, you're wrong, you're underestimating your Yaakov, Yitzchak wouldn't hear it. So Rivka orchestrates things for Yaakov to in fact prove it to her father, to his father. Yaakov deceives his own father, proves he can even confront the manipulative world, and now he received the bracha. Again, we explained last week, that is why Yitzchak isn't angry at Yaakov. He gives him another bracha before he leaves. It explains why Yitzchak and Rivka, their marriage doesn't fall apart as a result of this deception. Because Yitzchak is grateful to have his eyes open to the fact that Yaakov is in fact his rightful inheritor of his, of his legacy. But the consequences in the whole story, Rivka's happy, she orchestrates things, she gets the way she wants. Yaakov is the one. Yitzchak's happy, he's learned his eyes have been opened figuratively because he's blind, but his eyes have become opened to the fact that Yaakov is the true inheritor of his legacy. Who's the one who's not happy? Esav is terribly unhappy and expresses the unhappiness in the pursuit of trying to kill Yaakov. So this Yishtam Yoshev O'alim, this innocent young man, not so young, Yaakov, who's been characterized and defined by his living in tents. By the way, why was it Yoshev O'alim, not Yoshev O'hel? He sat in a tent. Why more than one tent? Rashi said last week, shame ve'ever. He went to two bate medras. He learned a little bit by shame. He learned a little bit by ever. He learned a little bit here. He learned a little bit there. Why? Why? One was greater than the other. What right did he have to go to the lesser yeshiva? And why do you have to switch yeshivas to begin with? Rav Dov Pavarsky, Rosh Yivah says, you see that you have to be a mavakish. You have to want to learn. Yaakov, he wasn't satisfied by locking himself into one derech, one ashkafa, one base medrash. He was Yoshev O'Halim. He went to different batei medrash. He attended different yeshivas. He exposed himself to different rabbanim. He learned from different svarim. If we want to see a simon bracha in our learning, the Gemara says in Avodah Zarah, if you want a simon bracha in your learning, you can't lock yourself into one Rebbe, one Rosh Hashiva, one derech halimud, one ashkafa. You have to be willing to see the width and breadth of what's out there. Shouldn't Panama Torah. And that was Yaakov. Yaakov had, Targum Yonasan t- translates, Yaakov had Ishtam Yoshevol. The Targum Yonasan says he had a Koach HaMavakesh. 
he was in insatiable thirst for learning. So he didn't sit in one tent. It was Yoshev Ohalim. He was able to sit in many tents. He was exposed to many ways. But now he left the tent. The tent of Aver, the tent of shame, the tent of his father, the tent of his grandfather, all the Batei Medrash. And he had to, he had to go on the road because Esav's in pursuit. And that's how our parsha begins. Yaakov leaves Beersheva, Rashi, the famous comment, Chazal, tells us that when a person leaves a place, so his Kedusha makes a Roshim, the presence of a person, of a, of a noble, righteous person, of a virtuous person, when they leave, when they leave, that absence can be felt. You know the old Yiddish joke? How do you know Yaakov wore a hat? It says, Vayetze Yaakov, would Yaakov go out without a hat? Yiddish humor, it's not mine, it's <laughs> terrible, absolutely terrible. Okay, and you guys, not a, you're an unkind audience. Okay, so Yaakov goes out, he's on the road, he has to leave the cocoon, he leaves the protection, he leaves the safety and security of his natural habitat, the base medrash of his parents' home, and he's on the road. And what does he encounter on the road? Vayifgaba makom, he comes to, what's the makom? No, 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 don't give me any fancy translations. What does the word makom mean? The place. That is a horrible description. The Torah, which is so eloquent and articulate in telling us details, here omits the detail. Vayifgah, he encounters there, the place. What do you mean makom? That's the best we can do? He encounters holiness. We know where he is. Where is he? Alright, we don't know exactly where he is. We did a Parsha class on this a few years ago. Is he in Beit El? Is he in Yerushalayim? Is the latter taking him from one to the other? Where exactly is he is a discussion. If you go to the modern Beit El, which I encourage you to do, a beautiful yeshuv, you'll see an enormous sign at the entrance of the yeshuv that says this pasuk, Vayifgaba Makom, and it says, it says on this big sign at the entrance of Beit El, I was there, don't think Beit El is a modern settlement, a settlement is an obstacle to peace, the settlement, settlement, says thousands of years ago, this is where Yaakov lay his weary head to rest, and this is where he had the dream of the ladder up and down. That's what it says on the sign. Ours just says, welcome to Boca Raton. <laughs> right? Welcome to Boca Raton. In Beitel, you could have a sign that references a Pasuk and says, thousands of years ago, our great Zayda chapped a good shluf and had a gewaldige dream right here in this spot that you're visiting. Okay, now you can come into our Yishuv. It's an unbelievable thing, an incredible thing. So where is this makom? Not for now, but not entirely clear. There's debate. Yerushalayim, Beitel, Haramoriah, where is it exactly? But my question is, why doesn't the Torah tell us? Wherever it is, why not tell us? Why leave it so ambiguous? Why leave it so, so mysterious? Vayifka makom. He encountered the place. So I want to read to you the insight of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Rabbi Soloveitchik says, and this is important, Whenever you see the word makom in the Torah, what is it a reference to? What is it a name of? Hashem. It's a name of Hashem. But each name of Hashem is not synonymous. We have multiple names of Hashem that depict different relationships, connections, feelings we have with Hashem, towards Hashem, from Hashem. So the word makom, what does it connote? I'll give you a hint. What do you say when you leave a shiva home after you've tried to comfort the mourner who's grieving, who's in pain? May the makom, may Hashem provide you comfort. We have a similar, the Shulchan Aruch quotes, when you visit a sick person, Hamakom, Hashem should give you a refuah shlema. 
If you see somebody who's lost a precious object, they have something of great value that they can't find, Hamakom, may Hashem come for you, may Hashem help you find it. Why do we use the name Makom in those circumstances at those times? I'll throw in another one. Anyone remember when we used the word Makom at the Seder? Baruch HaMakom, Baruch Hu. What's Baruch HaMakom? Baruch Hu. Who's the Who? Hashem. Who's the Makom? Hashem. So why are we invoking Makom at the Seder? We see Makom in all these different scenarios. We see it here, Vayifgaba Makom. Says Rabbi Salavitcher, the paradigmatic figure who found God despite his transcendence is the prophet Yechezkel. Yechezkel's prophetic revelation took place not in the temple, nor even in the land of Israel, but rather in a concentration camp in the midst of the bitter Babylonian exile among the captives on the river. Yet, despite the fact that it was a time of acute Hester Panim, the heavens opened and Yechezkel saw visions of Hashem. When Yechezkel declared, what did he say? Baruch Kvod Hashem. Mimkomo. Blessed is the glory of Hashem from His place. He was referring to the huge distance between God and His people. Yaakov similarly encountered Hashem in a time of travail. Penniless, fleeing his brother on the road towards exile, Yaakov perceives Hashem as Makom. Makom is the name of Hashem, says the Rav, when you feel distance, when you feel alienated, when you're struggling to feel close with Hashem, when you're suffering, suffering, when you're struggling, when you're wondering, does Hashem even notice me? Does He care about me? Is He involved in my life? Does He hear my cries? Is He there? When you feel Hashem is at a distance, that's when we invoke the name for Him, Makom. Yechezka Baruch Kvod Hashem Mimkomo. Mimkomo. Even when there is a huge gap, an enormous divide, even when we're searching and we can't find Hashem, Baruch Kvod Hashem, His glory is even from that place of hiddenness, even from that place of inaccessibility. Nevertheless, Kvod Hashem, one finds the glory of Hashem. Chazal interpret the word Makom in the context of prayer, both in regard to Yaakov and Avram. Chazal indicate that Avram instituted Shachris, based on the verse, Vayashkem Avram Baboker El... Hamakom Asher Ahmad Shab. Avram arose early in the morning where? To the Makom he had stood before. Based on the Pasuk, and the word Makom also appears, they suggest Yaakov instituted Marev. If, if Avram instituted Shacharis because the Pasuk says, Vayashkem, he went to the Makom, that was Shacharis. So Makom, he instituted Marev. My wife's vote. You know why Yaakov instituted Marev? Because there were 12 children to give baths and put to bed. So he instituted Mincha. I gotta go to Mincha Marv. I gotta go to Marv. Yaakov instituted Marv. Baruch Hashem. The word Makom has the connotation of an appointment, a date, a rendezvous in a certain place and a certain time. Prayer is a rendezvous with Hashem, which ideally takes place at a specific time and specific place every day. So Avram Davin Makom. Now, how did Avram feel when he Davin by Hashem Avram and he Davined? What does it describe about the Akedah? Vayar esa makom me rachok. Avram saw where he was meant to be. He saw where he was going with Yitzchak. But what did he feel about Hashem at that moment? Vayar esa makom. Hashem asked me to take my son and sacrifice him. I'll do it. I love Hashem. I'll do anything. But he felt Hashem at that moment was a makom. Vayar esa makom me rachok. Baruch kvod Hashem mim komo. We say in Kedusha also, we say, Ayei Mikom Kvodo, my favorite Kutzker. 
Every Kotzker is my favorite Kotzker. But this Kotzker is among my favorite Kotzkers. Kotzker says, makom kvodo. I love this. I think about it every Kedusha. Says the Kotzker, you know where Hashem is found? Aye, when you look for Him. Aye, when you ask, where is He? Makom kvodo. You found Him. You've discovered Him. Where is the place of Hashem's glory? Aye, when you look for Him, when you ask, where is He? You discover Him. Makom kvodo. So Yaakov, Makom, you know why the Torah doesn't tell us where it is? Because the geographic location is not important. The coordinates of where it is, they don't matter right now. What matters is Yaakov thinks, I don't know where Hashem is. Yeah, I just sat in tents my whole life. I've been in the base medrash my entire life learning about him. But now I need him. And where is he? My brother's trying to kill me. I'm on the road. I'm heading towards exile. I've left my whole family and everyone I know and their safety and their security and their protection. I'm going to go live with this deceitful uncle. And he doesn't even know what's in store for him. For Yaakov, it's a period of Hester Ponim. He has no money. He doesn't have anything. And therefore, he encounters Hashem who's at a distance from him. And yet, what does he do? He introduces Marav. When do we recite Marav? At night. It's not, that's not a true question. That's when you're quiet? That question, you're all quiet? It's not a true question. We dive Marv at night. See, Avram introduces Shacharis. Sun is rising high in the sky, illuminating the world. It's a bright new day. It's filled and pregnant with possibility. And there's brightness and warmth. And prospectively, Avram's looking forward to so much. Nighttime, night is how we describe a period of darkness, a period of night, a period of hiddenness. It requires us to have faith. You can't see what will be. You can't see what is. You may have suffered a difficult exile on a hard day. The morning, In the morning, you talk about Hashem's chesed. Oh, what chesed, the day ahead of me, what's going to be? I have such opportunity. What a bright, beautiful, magnificent day. But at night, it requires emuna. Yaakov institutes marv when? When vayifka bamakom. It's the capacity to daven even when Hashem feels like He's at a distance. For a Jew, Hashem is never too far away to reach out and grab onto Him. Even when we struggle to feel His presence, even when it's in the Bechinas Makom, even when it feels like Hashem is far, Ayei Makom Kvodo. When we ask Ayei, when we go on that search, when we look for Him, when we say Ayei, we've discovered Him. That is how we turn Him from Makom, from being at a distance to being where we are. And now you understand why Yaakov wakes up from this dream. He goes to sleep, he has a dream we'll talk about in a moment. He's got this ladder going up and going down. I was, uh, I, I, there was a hiatus. I'm going to say she's not here, so I can't get in trouble. There was a hiatus when I was dating my wife. A little break. I didn't cause it. And I dated, so I, I went out with one other person in between. And the person who set me up with that girl said, she was just back from Israel. And she was, this is how the Shadchan described her to me. She was Sulamutz of Arts of Her head is in the clouds, but her feet are firmly planted on earth. You'll, you'll be okay. Anyway, Baruch Hashem, it worked out. Anyway, so the, the, the ladder is going up to heaven, it starts on earth. This is a lesson, by the way, for Machanachim, for parents, that we have a responsibility. A Machanach, a Rav, a parent, you can't be Rosh Magia Hashemaima. Your head can't be in the clouds. 
You can't be so righteous, so holy, so knowledgeable, so in the clouds, so distant, so inaccessible, so, so non-relatable. You have to find that balance. Parents, Machanchem, Rebeim, Sulam Mutzav Arzavaroshim Magiyah Hashemaimah. To have your fir- feet firmly planted on earth, even while you're touching the heavens, even while your, he- your head is going up to the heavens. Yaakov has his dream. We'll talk about it. I have a cousin who was here for the Simcha last night, was telling me in the middle of the night, his vort. So I was talking to Torah, my cousin Drew, that the ladder, if you think about the ladder exactly, it looks exactly like a strand of DNA. DNA is a ladder. It's the strand of DNA. And Yaakov's dream in the ladder is he sees the God of his father. And how do we tap into the strength of what comes before us? The DNA literally represents who comes before us. DNA is our ancestry. It's pre-programmed within us based on the attributes of those who came before us. And that's what Yaakov's dream was. There's a ladder. Yeah, you think you're going on your own? My heavenly cousin Drew is telling me. You think you're going on your own, Yaakov? You've left the house. You're exiled. You have a dream of a ladder. Know that you have DNA. You carry your father Yitzchak, your grandfather Avram. Their DNA is in you. And then he brought proof, my cousin. How do you know Yaakov is a geneticist? How do you know he's such an expert in DNA? Because what happens later in the parsha? When he's ready to say, to his shver, to his father. Now I'm on the father-in-law team, by the way. <laughs> so I have to, it's a whole other perspective. Gone are all those jokes. So uh, yesterday I came to the afternoon call. Someone said, ah, you don't look any more shver than yesterday. Anyway, so, so now I'm on a different team. So, uh, but anyway, he's ready to say goodbye to his father-in-law. And he ends up staying and they come up with this business arrangement. And what does Yaakov do? Spot, spotted and speckled and striped and all the different color sheep. What does Yaakov manipulate? The genetics. He's a geneticist. Yaakov understands genetics. Where did he learn about genetics? It was Torah Mada, Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever, Torah Mada. I'm not taking a position on that. But how does Yaakov know genetics? Because he had a dream about a strand of DNA and the notion of how her genetics work and what's what's inherited, and so on and so forth. So he has this whole dream, the ladder up and down. He's running from his brother. He has no money. He fears he has no future. He wonders, where's Hashem? He doesn't encounter Yudke Vavke. He doesn't encounter Elohim. He doesn't encounter Midas Rachamim. He encounters Makom, the distant Hashem. And what does he wake up and say after this magnificent dream, which we'll look at in a moment? What does he say? Amazing. He says... Yesh Hashem, where? Bamakom hazeh v'anochi lo yadati. Bamakom hazeh, even when I'm struggling, I'm suffering. Even when I have uncertainty and anxiety and doubt. Even when I don't see Hashem. Where is the master plan? How is this going to work out? What's going to be? The Bechinas Makom, I feel like Hashem is at a distance. He's inaccessible. Where is He? But Yesh Hashem, b'makom hazeh. Even in that place of makom, of distance, there's Hashem there as well. You could find Hashem even in that place. Yesh Hashem, b'makom hazeh, v'anochi lo yadati. And that's what the Rav writes. Hashem's revelation in the times of crisis from the depths of despair and distress is a basic principle of Yadus. Sometimes God does not reveal Himself to the contented soul. 
He reveals himself to the mute soul, battered by weariness and exertion. Sometimes Hashem reveals himself to one who grieves for the ruin of his temple and the destruction of his altars, while avoiding one who dedicates his temple and stands at the side of his offering. Sometimes he does not reveal himself to the rational individual, but to one who is confused about life, who is bankrupt and who has lost track of his world. From time to time, man's salvation comes out of distress. Even the most spiritually elevated members of the Jewish people first encountered their Lord at a time of raging fear, helplessness, or distraction, when they were not anticipating such an encounter, were thoroughly surprised by it. Yaakov comes close to his God in a nocturnal dream while sleeping on the cold stones of the place. Moshe encounters a burning bush at a time when he's pasturing Yisra's flock entirely devoted to the simple everyday occupation. Yechezko sees visions of Hashem in exile on the river at a time when the appearance of the present full of quaking and horror contradictions the vision of the glorious future. Judaism has firmly established the halachic principle that even when man confronts an unchangeable evil decree from Hashem, even when his rejected prayers are thrown back in his face, he must see Hashem and conjoin with Him. In spite of the tragic reality that weighs Him down, Hashem reveals Himself through suffering and tragedy when the individual or the community is in trouble and distress. Yesh Hashem bamakom hazeh. Vayifka bamakom, He encountered Hashem who felt at His distance and He found Hashem even in that place. Even in that place. And then He wakes up and He says, Manora hamakom hazeh. You know what? It's wondrous sometimes even to be in a state of makom. To be in a state of discovery when Hashem is revealed and accessible, to be in a state of Hashem's providence is felt intensely, that's great. But you know what? Manoraha makomazeh. It's also wondrous. Sometimes, sometimes you could find Hashem in the period of makom, in the period of, of exile and helplessness and hopelessness. Sometimes that's exactly where you find Hashem. When you've reached your lowest point, that's exactly where you find Him. That's the three weeks. All those who are chasing Hashem find Him where? Sometimes on a Tishabav you discover Hashem sitting on the floor more than you can even on the highest, on the highest highs. So makomazeh, to lean in. When Hashem feels far away in distance, sometimes you lean in. It's like every relationship. We always come back to this. The relationship with Hashem, our other relationships in life are all a metaphor for that special relationship. And... In relationships, sometimes it's in a moment of crisis that there can be a breakthrough that yields a closeness that was greater than even before the crisis. When the person feels far away, you know, the pain of the other feeling far away, the pain and the stress and the hurt of the absence of the other is exactly the means through which the healing can happen and the drawing close can, can be restored and can actually even be better than it ever was before. So the whole opening of the parsha is this notion of makom, of finding Hashem even when He feels like He is, like He is far away. By the way, we're doing our overview of the parsha, and then we'll go into our specific psukim. Hopefully, we'll get to them. But more about the overview of the parsha, because I think it's relevant. Rav Shechter Shlita, my Rebbe in his uh, Sefer on the parsha, says the following, Chazal, Brishas, Rabbah, Pirkei, Rabbi Yezer, Ramban quotes it, find the description of Yaakov's dream difficult. Why? Malachim olimvi or dimbo. Where do the angels reside? Where do they live? In Shemaim. So what should it be? Your dimbo olim. First they have to come down, and then they go back up. I mean, they're going up and coming down. And the Medrash suggests that they come to attend to different things, Ascending in the first, right? So, so they already been down on earth because they were fulfilling certain missions. They went up, they changed places with other malachim who came down. Last year I gave a Joshua and Pashas 
and I suggested based on Ibn Ezra that these malachim that he's dreaming about are not in fact angels from heaven, but rather human beings. And Yaakov is having a dream that our mission on earth is to be angels for other people. And that's why Olimvi are dim. These aren't angels from above. We are here to be angels for others. I don't have time now, but last year, maybe we'll do it next year, we developed this idea that that's our mission, and that later in the parish, Yaakov wakes up, he and Esav go separate directions, and who does Yaakov encounter? Angels. And we see references that whenever our others were stuck, they ran into an angel who bailed them out. The notion of a guardian angel. A guardian angel means our mission here on earth is to be someone else's angel. What is an angel? An angel is an emissary, an ambassador of Hashem. The notion that every angel is here because they have a mission is the idea that we are all here with a mission. We are ambassadors, we are extensions of Hashem. And what is our mission? To make life better for the people around us. To be their guardian angels. To show up when they think that no one else has or no one else will. And maybe that's Yaakov's dream. Here Yaakov thought, how do you, how do you feel connected to Hashem? How do you realize your greatest potential as a Jew? Stay in the base medrash all day. That's your mission. Pour over the svarim, sit in the base medrash. That's how you come closest to Hashem. Now he's headed out. And Hashem gives him this dream of angels. And perhaps what Hashem was telling him was, it's time to leave the base medrash, continue to learn. We always have an obligation, a chi of Talmud Torah, Talmud Torah, can I get kulam? We have the lifelong learning. However, the purpose of the learning, limud amenas, lasos. The whole reason that we learn is to do, to lock yourself in the base medrash, where all the learning is never actualized, it's never expressed, it's never lived, is not a fulfillment of the learning. The Gemara says, which is greater, learning or doing? The Gemara says learning because it leads to doing. But doing is the greater. It's limud amenas lasos. The whole reason we're learning is to refine, to cultivate, to mold and shape ourselves into angelic personalities, to be angels to be guardian angels from others. So Yaakov's dream is, leave the base medrash, take all that learning with you, and be an angel for other people. That's exactly what he does, by the way. Where does he go from here? To a well. And what does he do at the well? He's an angel. All the rock, bullying, first story of bullying in the Torah, bullying going on with these shepherds. And he's the hero. He's the angel. That's our mission. Torah is to cultivate, to refine us into angelic personalities, to be the guardian angels, to show up, to help, to be other people's angels. Yaakov benefits from his angels. And we are, Yosef goes out to the field. He asks, where are my brothers? He finds an angel. At all these moments, it's angels. Who the Ibn Ezra in every one of those moments says, ah, it's a person. But they're fulfilling a purpose for our protagonist that are described as an angel. Someone's angel, my guardian angel came. I thought I had a flat tire on the side of the road, nobody cared. It was an angel who helped me change the tire. What do you mean, an angel came from heaven? Literally an angel? With wings? No, it's not an angel. Someone helps you, they're an angel. That's Yaakov's dream. We are to be the angel. We are to be the angel of others. Okay, so back to Rav Shechter. The measure suggests that these malachim represent the guiding ministers appointed to attend to the affairs of their respective nations. And the description of their olimvi or dim, they're going up and down, refers to the rise and fall of the four kingdoms. Hashem shows this to Yaakov as one of the founding fathers of the Jewish nation, promising him that his nation's fate would not rest in the hands of the malachim. Claudius would be portion of Hashem. Hashem would always be with Yaakov and with the Jewish people. Right, that's the pasuk here. Yaakov wakes up and Hashem says, olimvi or dim. What is this a reference to? The waxing and waning of the four kingdoms. The cycle and the rhythm of the world. 
The Persians rose and fell. The Egyptians rose and fell. The Babylonians rose and fell. Each of these kingdoms rise and fall. Olimvi or Dim. They go up and they go down. And Hashem was telling Yaakov, as the forefather of our nation, as the patriarch of our nation, don't worry. You're not going to be subject to the rise and fall of these nations of the world. You are mine. And that's exactly the Pasuk. Yaakov wakes up and Hashem says, Don't worry, you're not part of the rules of the world, of the rules of history. You're mine. I'm guiding history. You don't fall under the rules of history. You're under my direct supervision. I got you covered, says Hashem. Dveka, stick with me, I've got your back. And the Ramban explains, if you analyze history of any civilization you'll find a predictable rise and fall, the domination followed by utter demise. Persians, Babylonians, the Egyptians, a few examples. But the Jewish nation, says the Ramban here, are Lamala min hateva. We're above nature in its history, solely dependent on mitzvah observance. The Ramban considers this rule, Ein mazal Yisrael. The notion that Ein mazal Yisrael, Gemara says, the Jewish people don't have mazal. It means that the nations of the world are under astrological constellations. The nations of the world have rules of history. If a bigger nation swallows up a smaller nation, the smaller nation adopts the language, the culture, the dress of the larger nation. The Jewish people have been swallowed up across the globe. We've maintained our language, we've maintained our religion, we've maintained our culture. It violates all the rules of history. We are alone. Why? Ein mazal Yisrael. There's no constellation associated with Yisrael. We're not subservient to the dominion of the stars or the constellations. One of the Ikari Amunah, the principles of our faith is, we are an exception to the rule. And when Hashem brought Avram outside, Vayotze osa achutza, Chazal say Hashem was telling him, go out from your street, Vayetze osa achutza. What was Hashem telling him? Stop looking at the horoscopes. Put the astrological signs aside. No more calling the Psychic Friends Network. Leave that to other nations of the world. They can believe in that nonsense. They can believe in that narishkeit. But rather, Avram, Vayote Oso Achutza, go out of that narishkeit. Leave that following all of that silliness. Because you're not subject to a sign of the zodiac or to astrology. You're destined to bear a son. The Rav noted that if one were to draw a chart outlining Jewish history represented by multiple cycles of peaks and valleys, not by one predictable rise and fall, like other nations. Other nations rise, they're a big empire, and they go down. Many are predicting that's where we're at our peak right now. Hopefully we're just going higher and higher. But who knows? Never, if you study history, you can never be so arrogant to think we're the exception of the rule. Only one nation can have that pride. Won't call it arrogance, that pride. And who is it? The Jewish people. Our story is not one of a linear rise and then a fall, like the Babylonians, Persians, Egyptians, and others. But rather, we have peaks and valleys because we're not subject to history. Ain Mazali Yisrael, only Hashem. It's not natural. It's spelled out in the Torah. Then it expands on this concept. He says, the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah teaches that for the purpose of dating documents, Jewish kings count their years starting from the month of Nisan. Non-Jewish kings date their documents from the month of... Tishrei. And Siv says, why the difference? Exactly for this reason. Because regarding non-Jews who follow the natural rules of history, Tishrei is the appropriate month to use as a starting point. All of nature began in Tishrei. The act of creation is the beginning of the world. The Jewish nation, we follow a supernatural pattern. 
exemplified by the miraculous events surrounding Yitzhak Mitzrayim in Nisan. Therefore, this month is the appropriate first month of the year for the Jewish people and for the dating of our king's contracts and documents. Because we are Bebechinas Nisan, while the rest of the world follows Tishrei. And this is the Radak, Rav Shechter quotes, explains the Isra of Giranasha. We'll get to Yaakov wrestling with the angel of Esav and being injured and limping away. Yaakov's struggle with the angel teaches us the principle. Although the nations of the world have been interested in annihilating the descendants of Yaakov for centuries, the Jewish people will always prevail. Albeit in a somewhat damaged state, the forces of nature represented by the angel will never succeed because the teva comes into conflict. With lamala minateva, lamala minateva will always persevere. Rav Shechter goes on, he has many, many more examples, but I want to get back to our, back to our Parsha. But he says one of the comments, this is why I mentioned this. This may well explain the mysterious phenomenon of anti-Semitism, which has existed through the ages, but the cause of which has never been satisfactorily explained by sociologists. As can be seen in the case of organ transplant, says Rav Schechter, a body naturally rejects foreign objects. Kla Yisro, which is distinct, a creation of Hashem, is incongruous with the natural system by which the rest of the world operates. We can therefore understand why it would be natural for the nations of the world, which are part of Teva, to reject the foreign body called Kla Yisro. We don't excuse it, we don't accept it, we will fight it, but maybe the root of anti-Semitism is that we are that exception to the rule. Why is everyone else subject to this rule of history? And we are in Mazal Yisrael. They're bound by Teva, we're Lamalam in a Teva. Just like the body rejects a foreign object placed in it, so too the world is rejecting this foreign, what they perceive as a foreign object, the Jewish people. It's not an excuse, it's not even an explanation, but perhaps it's an insight into this uh, anti-Semitism that tragically we continue to see. Okay, let's conclude our, our um, overview of the Parsha and then get into our, our some specific psukim. So, Yaakov's on the run, he wakes up from his dream, and now he heads off. <clears throat> and he looks and he sees the well, and he confronts the, the uh, shepherds. He says, what are you doing? They say, it's the daughter of Rachel coming. And uh, the shepherds are trying to call it a day early. Yaakov gives him a little musr. And uh, he's speaking to Rachel. And he is very attracted to Rachel immediately. He embraces her. And of course, he falls in love with her. Rachel takes Yaakov home to her father. Can't get married without asking permission. And uh, Lavan hears the news that it's Yaakov's sister, his sister's son. And he runs towards him, embraces him, kisses him. And we know the, uh, the whole story, that Lavan really is deceitful. And he has all kinds of ulterior motives. But Lavan is ready to give Rachel over as a wife. And Hashem sees that Leah is hated. Is Leah really hated? Yeah. Is Leah really hated? Um, look at where's the Pasuk. He's willing to work seven years for Rachel. He works seven years. They pass by very quickly. Great insight into love. It should be the exact opposite. When you're counting down to the big day, it feels like it's taking forever. Not for the people planning, but for the people celebrating themselves. It feels like it's taking forever. So why for Yaakov, seven years of backbreaking labor for his father-in-law in order to earn 
Rachel's hand in marriage, and he describes it feels like it's nothing. And the answer is, Pasuk itself says, because he loved her. And when you're in love, and the work is the medium of love, then the work, then the time passes. Um, the days are up, and he wants his wife. We all know the story. Switcheroo. Lovin says, how could I let the younger one marry before the older one? And puts Leah inside. Rachel earns tremendous merit when she gives over the signs. When she gives over the signs to her sister Leah, Yaakov wakes up. It's a big question. We, we have the veil over the bride's face at, uh, at the Badekin. This was a Dvar Torah at uh, Sheva Brachas last night. My brother-in-law Binyamin gave from Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. I'm not going to tell you the answer, but I'll tell you the question. Is why we say we're emulating the whole story of Rachel and Leah and the major switch that took place and we put the veil over the bride's face. Shouldn't we do the exact opposite? Before walking to the chuppah, the groom should unveil, should remove a veil and confirm, in fact, yeah, this is the one from the Shidduch resume. It looks exactly the same. Maybe not exactly the same. The Shidduch resume pictures are all doctored and photoshopped, but close enough with all the makeup and hair, close enough. So, yeah, this is the one. Close enough. I'm ready. So, uh, shouldn't you take the veil off, not put it on? Why are we putting on the veil, not taking it off? It's a Gavaldic Akasha. Find my brother in law, he'll tell you. He'll tell you the answer. So, Leah becomes pregnant. Right away, Leah starts uh, having these children, many children. That was the other question I won't tell you the answer to. Hashem sees that Leah is hated. Where does Hashem see that? Is Leah hated? So the Rav says, Yaakov loved Rachel. He didn't hate Leah, despite the implication of the Pasuk. His bond to Leah merely suffered by comparison with Rachel, as characterized in the later Pasuk. His relationship with Rachel was singular, unique, qualitatively different from his love for Leah. So the Rav also was bothered by that so much so that he says, eh, the Pasuk doesn't mean Leah was hated. It's all relative. Relative to the love for Rachel, which is incomparable, unparalleled, that love was so great, Compared to that, it's Ki'ilu Leah was hated. Nice, but that's not what the Pasuk says. Pasuk says, Ki'snu Leah. Did Yaakov hate Leah? Was Leah really hated? How could the Pasuk testify she was hated? It was a great answer. Come back, Shabbos coming. Maybe we'll talk about it. <laughs> Leah starts having children. Gotta keep you people on your toes. Leah has children. And uh, by the time she gets to her third children, she's feeling pretty good about things. Why? Rachel has none. She's got three. What is three? What is three evoke right away? What is the number three? Chazaka. She's got a chazaka. She is established. All she wants more than anything in the world is to be the wife of Yaakov. She thinks now I got three kids. Score is three, nothing. Leah. And she says I got three kids as a chazaka. I'm muchzak as Yaakov's wife. She's, he's now mine. This is it. Yaakov's going to stick with me. Give up on that dream of Rachel. As much as he loves her, she can't produce a child. I have three. I have a chazaka. I'm now muchzak in Yaakov. She has a fourth son, which is beyond her wildest dream, and names him Yehuda. She has Apamodes Hashem, the name of gratitude. Chazal tell us nobody in history was grateful to Hashem until Leah came along and expressed that gratitude. One has to ask what that means exactly, because we've seen a lot of gratitude. And then we get to the story. Rachel says, 
Give me kids. If not, I'm dead. Chazal learned from here that infertility, barrenness is so painful. The inability to create continuity is so painful it makes a person feel dead even while they're alive. It robs a person of life, of happiness. And Rachel gets angry at Yaakov. I'm sorry, Yaakov gets angry at Rachel. He says, Tachas what, what am I, God? Angry at me? This is my fault? Which doesn't sound like a very sympathetic or, or empathetic response, right? His wife's lashing out. How many fertility shots could she take? How, many, how much debt and credit cards could they put with their IVF treatments? She's in pain. She's hormonal. She's taking shots. She's angry. And, and Yaakov's response is, leave me alone. You're yelling at me like this is my fault? I've got kids. Not very sympathetic. So there's a much deeper explanation and understanding because the wonderful Yaakov, Khalila, would never be so cruel or unkind. Leah keeps popping out kids. Leah, the maidservants have kids. That was the loose translation. The maidservants keep having kids. And uh, finally, Rachel has a kid, Yosef. We're going to read this section momentarily. We have the deceit. Once Yosef's born, Yaakov's ready to leave the house. And then we have this deceit. And then, when he's ready to go, we have this amazing uh, comment. In the Haggadah, Lovin says, Yesh lekel yadi I have the power to inflict harm upon you. Now here the word you is in the plural. Right, Yaakov takes his family, they run, Lovin chases and catches up. Rachel doesn't get off the camel. We have the whole encounter and uh, covenant to contract at the end of the parsha. Good. So Lavan says, I have the power to inflict harm upon you. In the Haggadah, Chazal say, Lavan is the Arami Ovidavi, that he wanted to destroy our people. If you look in Parshas Vayetze, Lavan is not exactly, you know, shul dinner honoree material. He's a cheater, an exploiter. He's a miserable lowlife. He's manipulative. He's a liar. But he's not a killer. He doesn't sound like he wants to kill everyone. So how did Chazal know that Lavan was a Jew hater? How do we know Lavan hated the Jews so much he was willing to destroy them? So Chazal were sensitive to this Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Hashem came to Lavan in a dream, and he said, Beware lest you speak with Yaakov, either good or evil. If Hashem found it necessary to contact Lavan and warn him against inflicting harm on Yaakov, we can assume that Lavan intended to do harm. Apparently Lavan did not intend to rebuke Yaakov, but he wanted to annihilate him. Because if his goal wasn't to annihilate him, Hashem wouldn't have intervened. Hashem wouldn't have come to him in a dream and said, Hands off. So in this Pasuk, Lavan offers a confession. He makes an admission. He says, it's true, I wanted to destroy you. He was going to avenge himself against Yaakov. But here's the amazing thing about the Pasuk. It doesn't say, Lasos imcha ra. Lavan doesn't admit, I really, you know, my son-in-law, I wanted to destroy you, I wanted to kill you. He was an old son-in-law by now. He had worked 14 years, he had, you know, the, mag- the, the magic had worn off. It's a beautiful insight. We call, Tanakh uses the expression too. Anyone know the Hebrew word for son-in-law? Chasim. Anyone know the Hebrew word for daughter-in-law? Kala. And that's how it's referred. You could be married for 50 years, and if your in-laws are still alive, Halacha would refer to you as their chasim, as their kala. It's in Tanakh, it's in Mishnah, it's in Gemara. It's the word that's used, chasim and kala. We can't come up with a better word? Okay, the wedding... Sheva Brachas. We'll give you Shana Rishona. Okay, enough. You're not the Chasana Kala anymore. We don't have another word for her son-in-law and daughter-in-law. Rechaim Kanievsky has a great insight. Why are they called the Chasana Kala? 
forever in perpetuity. Because Chazal want us to remember. You remember during the Sheva Brachos, the Ofraf, you remember they could do no wrong. They were perfect. It was an amazing relationship. All you saw was their virtue and their good. You overlooked, you explained the idiosyncrasies. You were just in love. Everything was amazing. Infatuation, everything was perfect. So Chazal want you to remember that forever. Have the mentality of Chassan and Kala. They could be married 20, 30, 50 years. See them as a Chassan and Kala. Bring that attitude of they could do no wrong. You're in love. You want to wait on them hand and foot. You want to give them everything the way when they're first married. So, okay, it, the magic had worn off. Yaakov was married for a while. So Lovin wants to kill his son-in-law by now. Sheva Brachas, he went to kill him. But already it's uh, 14 plus years later, Lovin's ready to kill him. But he doesn't say, Lasos imcha ra. I came to do evil with you. What does he say? Lasos imachem ra. I came to do imachem in the plural. Who's the plural? Who's Lovin coming to kill? Who's he coming to kill? He's coming to kill his own daughter, his grandchildren. If Hashem had not warned Lavan the night before, he would not have only exterminated Lavan, Yaakov, a foreigner, his son-in-law, an outsider, but even his own children and grandchildren. He would have done this for, if not for Elokei Avichem, the God of your father. Now it doesn't say Elokei Avicha, it says the God of Yaakov's father, it says the God of your fathers, the equal parallel plural. He identifies the entire family, his own daughters, his own grandchildren with Yaakov. He admits if not for Avichem, he would have destroyed everyone, including his daughters and grandchildren. Nothing short of divine intervention would have stopped Lavan. In comparison to Lavan, says the Rav, Paro was stable. Paro was immoral, an exploiter, a slave driver, but he was not criminally insane. He made money from his slave society. The temptation to exploit the Jews was too strong. He wanted to keep them downtrodden, but he did not try to wipe them out. But Lavan proves that the hatred of the Jew can reach psychopathic proportions. Again, this is the theme of anti-Semitism. The one who hates the Jew like Lavan, it reaches psychopathic proportions. It's not only wrong from a moral point of view, it's abnormal. It's a sick emotion from a psychiatric standpoint. One Only madmen could have devised the final solution, the plan to exterminate every single Jew. The hatred of our enemies today is abnormal, and that's what's frightening. Lavan was ready to kill his own daughters because they had adopted a God he did not understand. He felt so alienated from them that he kindled an insane hatred against his own children. So is the, such is the power of anti-Semitism that it drives a person mad, compulsive, obsessed, psych- psychopathic, to be willing to even kill and annihilate their own children. Lavan, Rav Goldberg says, Lavan is a conjunction of Lo Ben. Lavan doesn't care about the future. Lavan doesn't care about continuity. Lavan is not invested in his offspring. Lavan is the here and now. Lo ben Lavan, right now. Well, Yaakov is about his 12 children, his Eneklach, his Ura Eneklach. Yaakov is all about the future, invested in the future. Lavan is Lo ben, and Yaakov is all about the future. And Lavan's here and now anti Semitism is driven so great, he's willing to kill his own people. I thought about the news this morning 400 plus rockets shot into Israel by our evil, wicked enemies. And who did a rocket kill? a Palestinian man in Ashkelon from Hebron, killing his own people, his own children. The anti-Semitism, the hatred driven so strong, the result, even willingness to endanger and to kill. We see it 
In our times that the anti-Semitism is so great, people are willing to kill their own as an extension and as an expression of their hatred, of the desire to annihilate and to destroy the Jew. We are just going to leave it here. We're not even going to get into our Pesukim. We'll save it for next year. But uh, my voice is, is wearing out. So we'll pick that up. We were going to continue from last year. We'll pick it up here. God remembers Rachel. Perak Lamed Pasuk of Beis, that's what we're going to look at. I'll leave you with another question, since I've given you so much homework already. When do we read this? When did Hashem remember Rachel? We don't read this. When did Hashem remember Rachel? We read it about Sarah. What day of the year was it? Rosh Hashanah. It was Rosh Hashanah. That's when Hashem heard. God remembered. Does God forget that He needs to remember? It's a funny word, Vayizkor. We say Yizkor four times a year. We have to remind Hashem to remember. Who's Yizkor for, by the way? Us or Hashem? So the opening words of Yizkor are Yizkor Elokim. So Yizkor is not for us. So here, we who could forget, we're confident we'll remember. Hashem, who has a perfect memory, we're worried he's going to forget. Yizkor Elokim. Hashem, remember. And we have Hashem remembered Noah, and Hashem remembered Sarah, and now Vayiskor Elokim is Rachel. Why do we keep talking in Zichronos, a whole third of the Shemona Esri Musaf of Rosh Hashanah? Hashem remembered. Is Hashem vulnerable to forgetting? Hashem had a senior moment? No offense to anybody. Hashem had a senior moment? Hashem could forget? You'll forget in a moment I said that. Vayiskor Elokim is Rachel, that Hashem remembered, he could forget that he has to be reminded? Why is it when prayers are heard, it's described as Vayizkor, that Hashem hears. I'll pile that onto your homework. It's due next Tuesday morning at 9.30. Have a great week.